we're going to read from Genesis 9, verse 20, and all of chapter 10. Ha, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of, father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so that they wouldn't see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, that's how I'm saying that, by the way. That might be different to you, no? The sons of Japheth, Goma, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Goma, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togama. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tashish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Ramah, and Sabdakar. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Great. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalneth in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-Ir, Kalah and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kalah, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtuhites, Pathrasites, Kasluhites, from whom the Philistines came, dun dun dun, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemrites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans and languages, in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. So the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Apaksad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uzhul, Getha, and Meshech. Apaksad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shelef, Hazamaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Bobal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mashah towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent 
within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Did you catch the state of origin game one? State against state, mate against mate. I've kind of got a resolution not to use football as a sermon illustration, so I'm not going to today, except that today we're talking about the origin of states. Yeah, nation states. So it turns out in the Bible story are actually more connected than we might think. Uh, they're part of the same family tree, even if they end up as lifelong rivals. Uh, last week, things were looking up. Noah is a new Adam. He's ruling over the animals, saving them, providing for them, releasing them to be fruitful and multiply on the ground. There we go, we're working now. And he's acting like a priest, building an altar, making a sacrifice, even doing it on a mountain. But God promises not to destroy everything again. Oh, now it's not working again. That's all right. Promise not to destroy everything again, even though nothing in the hearts of humans has changed. Today, there's even more Eden stuff going on. Noah is a man of the ground. He's placed, uh, just like Adam, sorry, the man of the ground was placed in Eden. Noah is a man of the soil who plants a vineyard, a garden. Uh, it produces fruit. And Noah enjoys the fruits of his labors. Like Adam and Eve, though, he runs into some trouble with that fruit, the fruit in his garden. He becomes unashamedly naked. He lies uncovered in his tent. Now, Noah does something dumb here, but his drunkenness isn't the major focus of what goes wrong, nor is his nakedness. He's not the one who's repeating the fall at this moment. He becomes the fruit. Lying there, unable to act, he becomes a test for his sons. Sin is crouching at their door. Will they be like another ground man, Cain? Something super sketchy happens in this moment. There's a bit of wink, wink, nudge, nudge as Ham fails this test. And we're primed to see his actions negatively because when Noah's sons are reintroduced in this part of the story, we get the side-eyes comment that Ham is the father of Canaan. And if you're reading this story as an Israelite, you know Canaan are the bad guys. So you're being primed to see the story accordingly. And that gets repeated as he sees his father naked. For the reader of the story, he's going to be the father of the Nephilim-sized enemies who pop up when Israel tries to enter the land. Genesis 6 should be ringing in our ears as readers as well. And it's possible that behind the innuendo here, we're actually reading the origin story of Canaan. That the seeing his father naked is innuendo about something quite seedy. And that when he tells his brothers what he's done, he's making a claim to some sort of supremacy in the family. So just bear with me for a moment. In Genesis 2, nakedness is neutral. There's nothing to suggest that seeing nakedness in itself at this point is sinful. There's something more going on than Ham's curse just because he sees his dad naked. It's because he does something wrong. In Genesis 3, once sin's in the picture, coverings are made by people, then God, as protection from our vulnerability to, to one another, people who act as beastly predators who take advantage of nakedness. That's a pattern that's implied with the sons of God seeing human women and taking them, and that being repeated by David and Bathsheba, as we saw a few weeks ago. But Ham's transgression here is a big deal. It's a fall. He gets cursed. There's something going on where this is a repeat of the grasping evil that's produced curse so far. 
in a story where we're following a line of seed, there's something extra seedy going on. So when Leviticus, part of the same five-volume set of books in the Bible, talks about uncovering people's nakedness, it's a euphemism, it's a way of talking about sex. Now here's how the ESV translates these same Hebrew words in Leviticus 18 from verse 7. Don't uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And then Deuteronomy 22 uses the same Hebrew phrase that's here in this verse. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. And this sort of seedy origin story for Israel's enemies, it repeats in Genesis, so later you get Lot's daughters who get their dad drunk in a sort of mirror of this story. It's gross. We're meant to see something quite disgusting happening here as Ham takes advantage of his father being drunk. Uh, for Lot, with his daughters, they produce the Moabites and the Ammonites. And you can take this parallel with a grain of salt, but Israel's enemies come out of these disobedient unions. And we'll see what happens with Ham's line in the table of nations. But before we follow Ham and the curses, we see his other two sons, Noah's other two sons, acting rightly. They act like God. They cover up Noah's nakedness without bringing him shame. They go above and beyond to do what's right for their parents. And so they get blessing, whereas when Noah wakes up and finds out what Ham's done, well, Noah acts like God. He pronounces a curse on Ham's line. Ham's seedy line is not the line of seed. In fact, his line will be cursed to be the lowest of the low, literally the servant of servants. And Noah blesses Ham's brothers, and that'll be a pattern that repeats in Genesis as well, that brothers get blessing or curse, depending on which line they belong to, the line of fruitful seed or the line of serpent-like people. And it's a pattern we've seen before with Cain and Abel, one brother receiving blessing and approval while the other receives curse after sin devours him. And so there are these two family lines we're tracing through the story, God's children and the serpents, a line of blessing and a line of curse. And these lines continue after the flood. Do you notice that in the curses, Ham doesn't even get named here. It just jumps straight to his kid, Canaan. While God is called the God of Shem. And then he and Japheth both get blessings from Noah. And then we're told Noah dies. And after that, we get this long list of generations, the generations of his kids, the table of nations it gets called, which is how the Genesis origin story gives an origin story for the whole world. Everybody that Israel knows and meets in their story, their story tells an origin story for these nations. Everyone they're going to encounter in their history. It's a very deliberately stylized genealogy, a symbolic people of, picture of all the people of the world. There are seven times ten nations mentioned. Seven and ten are numbers that repeat all the way through the Torah as pictures of completeness. Seventy nations, it's everyone. And it's making a point for us. This section is bracketed with a statement that all the people over all the whole earth, and remember we're not thinking globe like we think of it, we're thinking earth like where people live, all the people come from this family tree. It's making the point that everyone under heaven, even Israel's enemies that they might want to see as not human, actually come from the same family. They can all trace their roots back to the same start of the story where all people were made with the same purpose, made in the image of God to represent Him. And everyone in the story comes from the same flesh and blood, the one 
humanity. We've got the same breath of life in our lungs, the same lifeblood pumping through our hearts. And so, as the story goes on, we'll see these nations emerging that become evil enemies of God's plan. But the whole way you're living amongst these nations, the whole time as Israel, you're to remember that these nations all are part of the same family tree. We'll see in the line of hand, we get the Bible's origin story for Babylon, and Genesis is going to retell that story from a different angle in the passage we look at next week, the Tower of Babel. And this is because Babylon becomes a big deal in the Bible story and Israel's story. But we get the stories of a whole bunch of other nations too. In Javeth's line, we get a whole bunch of nations and it zeroes in on two sons, Gomer and Javan, or Javan. We'll call it Javan because that's what we call Javan. And he talks about them as a way of talking about nations will become significant. So Javan, for example, is the Hebrew word for Greece. So just remember that next time you're talking to him. And hi, Javan, I notice you're online. We're told Javan's sons found coastal nations spreading out, each with their own language. And there's an interesting chronological thing going on when next week in Babel, everyone's going to have the same language. But here we're seeing the languages spread out. And it's maybe just that it jumps back in time in chapter 11 to talk about some events in chapter 10. We're told they spread these coastal nations out across the coast. And then look who Ham's kids are. Cush, Ethiopia, that's Cush's Ethiopia, then Egypt, where Israel spends plenty of time in slavery and captivity before the Exodus, then Put and Canaan, are the giant enemies of God who occupy the land. And we get these sons and nations from Cush's line that share names with places watered by the rivers of Eden. It's also just worth focusing on for a second. Havilah and Cush are two of the regions that the rivers in Eden run through a picture of how life flows through it and then ultimately flows out into the nations, waters the land and provides life, even for these nations that are the enemies of God's people. Even for these nations in this cursed line, God is providing life, providing the opportunity for little Edens to be restored, people to be restored to him. The other Eden rivers, you might remember, go through the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, they head into Babylon the places where God's enemies dwell. And that's where we go next. From Ham via Cush, we get the story of the founding of later and maybe the greatest enemies of God's people, Babylon and Assyria. Other than this bit, the table of nations is mostly just a genealogy, a list of names with a few little bits of commentary, but we throw to story mode here, which makes you think that the narrator has a bit of a purpose for telling these stories. We're told some details about the foundations of these empires, about the founder of these empires. Details that throw us back to pre-flood life. Nimrod, we're told, is a mighty warrior and he uses the same word as for the, the Nephilim when it talks about them being the heroes of old. Nimrod's like a giant Nephilim. This is a human who spreads bloodshed like Cain and Lamech and the Nephilim. He's a violent ruler perpetuating the sort of behaviour that caused the flood. Remember last week, it was all about violence on the earth. Well, he's a warrior on the earth. And we've been set up to see the earth and the heavens as different realms and the earth is the domain for human rule, where humans are meant to rule the earth like God rules. But here's Nimrod filling the earth with violence, a, a mighty warrior on the earth. His name even comes to mean mighty hunter because even though animals have only just been given to Noah's family as food and we're told they'll live in terror, 
of humans. Nimrod takes that next level. He's a mighty hunter, a beast master, a beast killer, a bloody and violent man. This isn't the sort of rule that Genesis 1 pictures for humans over the earth or over the animals. Nimrod is an anti-Adam, a violent warrior king. And he launches Babylon and Assyria who'll cart what becomes two kingdoms of God's people off into exile through the Old Testament. And after Nimrod, we get a whole list of the Canaanite tribes, the people Israel has to displace from the lands later on, and a description of them spreading out into just that land. See, Ham's line isn't going to be the line where the seed the story is following comes from. It's a dead end filled with violent and grasping nations who'll get caught up in a cycle of violence and violently oppose God's kingdom coming. This beastly line of Ham produces Canaan and Babylon and Nephilim-like heroes like Nimrod. And one of the points here in this narrative, especially if you're reading the story, living in one of these empires, imagine that. Reading this story, living in Babylon in exile, surrounded by a violent kingdom, one of the messages here is don't be a Nimrod. And there'll be a tradition that expands here from, from these pictures that pictures God's people as shepherds who exert mastery over beasts but care for them as an analogy for how God cares for his people. There'll be talk about God's people beating swords into plowshares, resisting these patterns of violence, not being like Nimrod and his bloody empires, empires built on seedy sex and covering the nakedness of others and bloody violence, empires that consume and abuse even the animals while putting ourselves on top of the food chain empires of predators. But we do start getting a seed planted here for the Hebrew reader because in Shem's line, we get the line of Eber. That's the Hebrew word for Hebrew. This is the family tree that the rest of the story is going to keep following all the way to Jesus. We've met men of name, the Nephilim, and we'll see humans trying to make a name for themselves next week in Babel. But Shem's name is literally the Hebrew word for name. Here's a people of name. People who God will work through to make his name great, who will represent his name in the world. And it's another story where the younger brother gets the blessing. Shem's older brother is Japheth, but Shem is going to be the father of this line of promise. And this family ends up in the eastern hill country, another movement east, and God will then in the next chapters call them back from the east, out of Babylon, out of that land towards the promised land where he calls a descendant of this line, Abram, to come and live in the land of Canaan. And this table of nations, we flagged this before, it wraps up telling us not just about the future violence that will tear this family tree apart, but that this is one family spread out through the world. That all people share this common origin story in our humanity, that we were made to live as God's image in the world, to be fruitful and multiply as we represent him in the way we rule creation. And that's going to create a stunning view of one's neighbours to see them as this sort of human, even when they're not acting like it. A stunning way to see your neighbour who is looking at you down their blade, the blade of their sword, who's carted you off into slavery. And it's very different to the stories of the other nations, the other stories that celebrate the Nimrods of this world and create empires that do so as well. 
stories of heroic, violent warriors who found cities. You don't have to go far in history to find those stories. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, all the nations, even the Hebrews, will end up like Nimrod's kingdoms. Caught up in kingdoms built on violence and bloodshed, all the nations end up going to war against God and his plans for fruitfulness, spreading violence and blood over the face of the earth. So these nations from the table of nations, they pop up again and again through the Old Testament, state against state, brother against brother, until it comes to a head. In Ezekiel, God promises to go to war with these nations of the world. He says, I'm against you. And then these bolder names come from the table of nations, from the lines of Ham and Japheth or their descendants. Plenty of other nations have already been wiped out by this time. But God says he will bring the mighty warriors out of these nations, all their soldiers, a mighty horde of Nimrods who will violently oppose God's people. And then God will destroy these nations executing judgment on them the way he did on Egypt with plagues, so that as he does this, the many nations will be confronted by God's holiness and God will make himself known in their sight to these many nations. The nations of Genesis 10, the whole world, they will know that he is the Lord. Daniel picks up this theme and he picks up some of the table of nations as well after the fall of Babylon and its great Nimrod-like king Nebuchadnezzar After Babylon comes Persia. It's a a lesser empire in Daniel. It it swallows up Babylon and its pieces, but then it gets swallowed up in a violent war against the kingdom of Javan, the kingdom of Greece. It's the same word there underneath that. Before a mighty king arises, and it's probably Alexander the Great that's talking about, a a giant Nimrod who will emerge for a bit and take over the whole world as they know it. But once he dies, two Greek empires based in Egypt to the south and Syria to the north, will fight each other to the death. Nation against nation, state against state, brother against brother, producing bloody slaughter of many thousands as they seek to exert themselves on the world, as they seek to be mighty warrior kings who found empires built on blood. These Nimrods. Until the massive Nimrod from the south dies and... No one knows what's going to happen next. These nations, they rise and these kingdoms fall and yet God still reigns. And so Daniel ends with this picture of God's kingdom emerging at this time in this violent world of Nimrods, mighty warriors of the earth. While they look like they're having a field day, sowing fields of blood, the kingdom of heaven will turn up. Even raising some of those who are asleep in the dust, killed by violent empires bringing life and deliverance. And Daniel says, when this happens, when God's kingdom emerges, the wise will shine, not like earthly nimrods, but like the brightness of the heavens, shining like the stars. He's already pictured this a bit earlier in chapter 7, when the Son of Man enters the throne room of heaven to rule. And so let's tie up some threads. We've got a new Adam in our story, Noah, who fails, and whose son fails spectacularly, just like Cain did, and he's cursed to become a servant of servants, and from his line we don't get servants, but Nimrods, anti-Adams, enemies of God's people. Ultimately, all the lines in the table of nations become like Babylon, like Nimrod, even the Hebrews, which is why they end up in exile. 
All these nations live by the sword and die by the sword. And we're waiting for a kingdom of shining heavenly people to emerge, led by a king who won't take on the grasping pattern of Ham or be a violent warrior king who builds an empire with power, but who reveals God's glory to the world. And maybe we're even waiting for a king who will restore the whole table of nations, not just Israel. By the end of Daniel's timeline, the end of the Old Testament, all the nations and empires in the table of nations, all those that haven't already been destroyed and swallowed up, become united under the biggest Nimrod of all. What Babylon and Persia and Greece tried to do, Rome does. Rome is an empire that unites these nations through violence. And then the cross is where all these threads are tied together. Jesus, the true Israel, has returned from exile. He's crossed the Jordan, he's entered Jerusalem from the east, entered the temple to cleanse it, and at the cross he's surrounded by a bunch of Nimrods, the armies of all the nations, the armies of Rome, the empire that has united all these people, surround him, even Israel joins in as he is crucified. The anti-Adams versus the true Adam. These Nimrods put him to death because like the Nephilim, like the servant, this violence has always been aimed at overthrowing God. And as this happens, God reveals himself in his glory. He reveals his king and saviour. He reveals his nature. He reveals the nature of his kingdom. And his judgment falls on the world. As Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection as the son of man. And so now we have a choice. We live in a world of nimrods in states and economies and communities built on violence and grasping and seedy sex, and will turn anything into a fight, will make anything tribal. Nation against nation, state against state, culture against culture, mate against mate, sibling against sibling, sport, politics, conflicts in community groups, in families, even in churches. We'll fight culture wars and we'll jump on bandwagons behind people fighting the good fight, strong champions, mighty warriors on the earth even fighting for good things at times without realising we're using the weapons of warfare handed to us by Babylon so that we become just like our neighbours. We'll either pick a Nimrod or a Goliath, a champion to represent us as we stand behind them or we'll try to be the hero ourselves, make a name for ourselves in these stupid fights. But we are called to be a people of peace, people who follow the Prince of Peace, not Nimrods. Look at how Paul has Jesus fulfilling all these threads. We're not waiting for his kingdom to emerge. It's not a, a future far-off thing. The kingdom is emerging and with it comes a new non-Nimrod pattern for life. Paul says in all our relationships, we should have the same mindset as Jesus. Now, he's just unpacked that in Philippians 2 as being about having the same love as Jesus, pursuing oneness in his way of life. And we'll see oneness as a problem in Babel next week. But he says we shouldn't do it out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, not trying to make a name for ourselves, but instead we should be humble. This is an anti-violent, anti-grasping, anti-Nimrod, anti-Ham, anti-Cain, anti-serpent way of life. It's the way of life Jesus lived when he didn't consider equality with God, something to be grasped. And that's this word under grasped, it's about seizing something, violently grabbing hold of it. 
This isn't seize anything for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, became a servant. Which is interesting, if Ham's curse was service, Jesus takes on Ham's curse and he goes even lower. He takes on Cain's curse and goes all the way to death. He even becomes human, God being made in human likeness. It's an upside down Genesis 1. And he becomes obedient to death on a cross, letting the beastly Nimrods kill him in order to expose the evil human heart that would kill God if it meant we could grab more. But at the same time, he exposes the heart of God that we're called to share as his children. And as he takes on what looks like curse, descending from the heights of heaven to become the lowest on earth, as he's given over to these violent human empires, God exalts him to the highest place and gives him a name, a Shem, above every name, so that at his name, not only should every Hebrew knee bow, but every knee on earth, every knee in heaven, every knee under the earth, heavenly and earthly creatures, the living and the dead, everyone we've met in Genesis, every human ever, will bow to him as king. Lord and King, the King who brings the kingdom pictured in Daniel, the anti-Nimrod King of the anti-Babylon. And if we join this kingdom, Paul says, if we become those who have this rule of Jesus shaping our lives, if his spirit is given to us to change our hearts and our minds so that we can take on this pattern of love and humility and service, living differently from the Babylons around us, we'll be blameless and pure children of God shining, just like Daniel talks about, shining people in a generation of Nimrods will shine among the other kingdoms like stars in the sky because we will be heavenly people, not just earthly warriors. This is just what Daniel says will happen when God's kingdom turns up and Paul says it happens for us when God's kingdom turns up in our lives and we start following the rule of Jesus. As Jesus' kingdom unfolds, we get the story in the book of Acts from Shem's descendants in Jerusalem and Samaria. It unfolds to the end of the earth, and we see those scattered in Genesis coming home. Uh, even a descendant of Ham's son, Cush, Cush, the father of the Ethiopians. And so we meet this Ethiopian eunuch. He's part of the kingdom of Ethiopia, a servant of the ruler, an important official. And he's there traveling along the road, reading an Old Testament. And when he is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, he gets baptized. This is a picture of the table of nations coming home through living waters. Through the spirit of Jesus entering his kingdom through baptism. And it's a story that is a story for all of us, wherever we're from. In the Bible story, whether you're from the land of, line of Shem or Japheth or even Ham, from any of the nations outside this part of the known world, out of Israel's story, we are humans with the same lifeblood, God's breath giving us life. And we can become children of God again who shine like the stars through Jesus' invitation for all humanity to come back into God's family tree, his tree of life, not by his breath, but by his spirit dwelling in us. And the radical inclusion of people from all nations is part of what marks Christianity out as profoundly different from the religious and political vision of Babylon and other nation states since. There is no more ethnically diverse community in the world through history than the church. Just think about that for the moment because it might not be reflected in our community as we meet, but it is true of God's family. 
And wouldn't it be nice if our community reflected that? But this unity works across these other divides when we choose to follow Jesus because he is a king unlike Nimrod, who builds a kingdom unlike Babylon. And so our choice before us today is the choice as to whether or not we want to be Nimrod's mighty warriors who make names for ourselves, building our babels, lining up behind Nimrod's to champion our cause in culture wars, in silly games that we play, even in state of origin. Don't be a Nimrod. Be like Jesus. Find our life together as children of God, taking up his pattern of service as we serve one another, not as an expression of curse, but seeking to bless the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter where we're from, no matter our origin stories, our family trees, however far we can trace back our ancestry, that we are humans, and that means we are made for more. That means we are made to be your children, to live in relationship with you, reflecting your rule in the world. That through Jesus we can be recreated as heavenly people, shining ones who give a picture of heavenly life and love in the world as we follow the example of Jesus, our King. And so we pray as we continue to think about what that might look like in our own lives, where we've been swept up in Babylon, where we've become little Nimrods who seek to rule through violence, where we don't even see that violence because it's hidden in supply chains and we just benefit from it as end users. Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts and change our lives so that we do shine brightly in a world that is still marked by curse and sin and death. Help us to shine as people who aren't shaped that way because we have life and blessing and we're heading towards life forever with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.